Today's episode is brought to you by www.thestardraft.com. Hollywood award season is right around the corner, but let's be real, it never really left. Anyway, that means it's time to play everyone's favorite fantasy game. And no, I'm not talking about fantasy foosball. Draft a team of celebrities, and when they score wins and nominations through award season, your team earns points. At the end of Oscar night, the top scorer across all leagues will take home a cash prize. So create a league with friends or join a league to make new ones. Drafts are held every night. Play today at www.thestardraft.com. Draft celebrities, slay your friends, win money. Well, it looks like you all hated me so much that you've given me this award for it. That it can be about the performance and not the politics. This moment so much bigger than me. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. And thank all of you who voted for me. And all of you who didn't, please excuse me. I deserve this. Thank you. And welcome back to this month's episode of Academy Queens. The souffle, it must be gay. Gay! I'm Joey Gentili. And I'm a broken down broad. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And this is Academy Queens, your LGBT guide through the uh, Academy Awards per decade per category. And here we are with our midway point, our class of 1954, um, which is kind of an infamous year. Pretty excited for this. Um, maybe excited for the wrong reasons, but Brandon, what do you, uh, what do you think about all this? Uh, it's an interesting year. We decided to do it basically because this is one of those years where a lot of people think that the wrong person won in lead actress and, uh, coming up with this last few episodes to do for this season, we thought, well, we might as well do this infamous year. And it wasn't until I watched these movies that I realized um, this, in my opinion, just a little teaser, this is one of the weakest supporting actress lineups I think we've ever covered. Uh, yeah, I was absolutely shocked. I actually would compare this to 1986, which I, if anyone that has listened to the show, you remember I infamously was like, I don't know, just give it to Tess Harper because who's ever said give it to Tess Harper and I don't give a shit. So I could not believe, I, every, every film that I had watched, I just kept hoping and supporting that, well, maybe it's gonna be better and it never did. So I don't know, I don't know. But now you said you don't like it. I said that I haven't liked it. And I wonder if our guest today he likes it. And, you know, without further ado, all the way from Germany, let's give a big Guten Tag Academy Queen welcome to Christoph. Welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. This is Mrs. Norman Main, but my friends also call me not Fritz. <laughs> it was one time. <sighs> yeah, but I remember that one time. Listen, not Fritz. It was... I knew the moment I said that, I'm like, oh, he's not going to let me live that down. And the fact that you even instantly changed your your Twitter name to that, just, it warmed my heart. I, I, you, you have a very great heart. And like me, who have, I have a black hole where my heart should be. So, 
Yes. But this is also pretty, pretty, um, you've been on the show before. Uh, I had a, we had a great show actually with you, me and actual Fritz, but you've never been able to be on the show with Brandon here. And when you, me and Fritz had done this, we had actually done this on this video zoom chat. So this is the first time you get to be on with Brandon. And I was like, we have to do it with the zoom chats. So then it's, then it's only fair. So boys, I'm glad you two are here. Hello, Brandon. The last time I did it with Fritz, it was with Fritz. It was a bit like Brandon was letting Fritz and me look after Joey and take care that he doesn't make too many stupid things. And in the end, Joey and I sort of banded together and went after Fritz. So I don't know what it means for today, Brandon. I'll try to be nice to you. I will not try to be nice to Joey, but I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah, that was uh, that was when I was moving to Texas. So I took a, a bit of a time off. And that's when uh, Joey uh, recruited the Germans to do an episode about Ingrid Bergman and uh, the bad seed and etc. I listened to it. That was a fun episode. It was that Nancy Kelly. I love her. Do you yourself? Have you seen everyone in that cat those categories? Would you know who you I are? have not? I have not seen every film in that lineup still. Um, as of right now, my winner and lead would be Carol Baker. And um, let me refresh my memory on supporting. So based on what I've seen um, in supporting, I would probably go with Dorothy Malone, uh, Carol Baker and Dorothy Malone, but there's still a couple films I haven't seen in that, that year. The horny duo. Yeah. Although I do like um, um, Eileen Heckert in The Bad Seed. I much prefer her in The Bad Seed than um, Butterflies Are Free. She probably a very close runner-up for me in that lineup. Fritz doesn't. Silly Fritz. (laughs) I still laugh to this day, um, not Fritz, that by your comment of you just feel like (laughs) Carol Baker is getting fingered under the table during all the scenes. She is. She is. (laughs) You can't convince me otherwise. No, no. But what what are your thoughts um, overall with 1954? Because... I have a quick funny story about how we chose this year, but what are your thoughts overall and then the supporting? Do you agree with Brandon and I that it's really not a great supporting lineup? Ah, that supporting lineup is really not good. Yeah, I agree with you. This uh, 1954, of course, the lead actor's lineup is iconic, but then you get to supporting and it's not iconic. I think we'll go into the details later, but I totally agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah, there's like the lead lineup, a giant abyss, <laughs> and a black hole, then the deep end, because it's not shalalalo, and then you get to supporting. So it's it's quite interesting. Um, but the quick funny uh, story before we get started on here is uh, Brandon and I had like chosen three or four years to choose from. And it was kind of like choosing the bad seed year, to, year again, because we were like, hey, Kristoff, come on the show with us and choose one of these years. And you're like, I want to do this year. And I said, no, no. <laughs> so <laughs> it was so funny because we did, you did the, you and uh, Fritz had done the same thing essentially with the bad scene. Um, so that was a really, really funny little part too. But um, uh, before we get started, uh, since you're back with us, Christoph, do you want to do the honors and start with the guesses who you think we're going to choose? Okay. Um, when you posted this on Twitter, People 
basically everyone said Brent and I are going to be basic bitches who will go for Judy and lead and Eva Marine supporting and you are going to go full Joey and going for not Judy and lead and not Eva Marine supporting. Um, and I'm just going to say uh, this is not going to happen. I'm going to say you, Joey, are going to surprise and shock us all by going for Judy Garland and lead. Whereas in supporting, I'm somehow, I, I'm still drawn to the high and the mighty ladies for you. And I don't know which one. I'm just going to say Jen Sterling. Uh, Brandon for lead. I'm also going to say Judy Garland for supporting. I'm going to say not Eva Marie Saint. Um, and from the other four, I'm, I don't think maybe Nina Fosch is someone you would gravitate towards. I'm going to say Judy and Nina for you. Is that how you say her last name? I've been saying like Fock or Folk. Well, I did. I don't want to call her Fuck. So um, I think Fosh is actually the right pronunciation. Fair, fair. Brandon? I think for Joey, if for some reason I have a feeling about Dorothy Dandridge and uh, Katie Hurado. So I'm going to go with those ladies for you. For um, not Fritz, I'm going to go with Audrey Hepburn and Eva Marie Saint. Okay. Brandon, I I think you might agree with the Academy here and, and go Grace Kelly. Um, so I'm going to say Grace Kelly for you for supporting. See, this is where it gets messy. Uh, I'm going to wait, who hasn't been named? Claire Trevor and who's the other one? You know what? Why not? I'll oh. say, I'll say you're going to go Claire Trevor because who the fuck knows with this? You may pull a, uh, <laughs> you may pull a, uh, just give it to Tess Harper moment, but with Claire Trevor here. So, and I do remember you saying you liked Claire Trevor in Dead End, which shocked me because mm-hmm. her role is about, I feel the same size here, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, for Kristoff, I, I feel like Judy Garland just makes sense for you, but I could see you being out of nowhere and saying like Jane Wyman, but I'm not that uppity on that. So I'm going to say you do go Judy Garland, but I'm going to say you go Jan Sterling and supporting. So who's right? Who's wrong? Let's figure it out. So we're both predicting Judy Garland and Jan Sterling for each other. Yes. I throw it right back to you. Okay. All right. Uh, Brandon, take it away, sir. All right. Well, your supporting actress nominees were Eva Marie Saint in On the Waterfront, Nina Foch for Executive Suite, Katie Hirado for Broken Lance, Jan Sterling for The High and the Mighty, and Claire Trevor for The High and the Mighty. Our first uh, one up here is Eva Marie Saint, our winner for the year, winning for On the Waterfront. Um, in On the Waterfront, she plays Edie Doyle, the sister of a murdered union man. Um, going into this, she is nominated with the New York Film Critics, and she is uh, not a nominee with BAFTA for Newcomer. So, Christophe, how do you feel about Eva Marie Saint and On the Waterfront? Uh, well, Eva Marie Saint, uh, she gets her introducing credit and on the waterfront, and she is thrown into a film right with Marlon Brando and Lee J. Cobb and Carl Malden and Rod Steiger. Um, and I think she's doing quite good work here. She's holding her own against 
this man. She is juggling different emotions, conflicting emotions. There's grief, there's anger that she's trying to control. Uh, she's falling in love with Marlon Brando because he's Marlon Brando in the 1950s and he's easy to fall in love with. Um, their relationship is getting more complex. And I think it feels genuine and heartfelt throughout as a debut performance. It's really good. I like what she's doing. Um, I must say she's still only the third performer I think of when I think of On the Waterfront. Of course, it's Marlon Brando first. Uh, it's Lee J. Cobb second for me, although at least screen time wise, Lee J. Cobb doesn't have as much screen time as Eva Marie Saint has, uh, but it's still a good performance. It's a memorable performance and I understand the nomination, especially in the field that's generally not too great and well-remembered. Uh, so I think it's a very good debut and very good performance that I rather like. I watched On the Waterfront for the first time last year or maybe the end of 2020. And I just remember three things from this movie. I remember Joey's coop, the pigeon coop. Uh, I have a coop. I remember for me, when it comes to the guys, Rod Steiger the most. I, I love Rod Steiger in this movie. In fact, I want to know who you guys would choose between that trio it, it is really neck and neck with Carl Malden and Rod Steiger for me but Steiger does such amazing work in the limited screen time he has like it's so just what, what what's the word what, what's that thing you guys always say I go for or I go for the loud performance and Brandon goes for the what the uh the more subtle ones yeah see I, I barely really go for it I don't even know the word uh, he's so subtle, but he's so good. He's so good. And I was like, I want to play that role on stage. And then Carl Mullen is fantastic. But um, so and then I remember Marlon Brando. So for me, like when I think of On the Waterfront, I don't even think of Eva Marie Saint. And the thing is, is like, she's not bad in this, but I don't know if I would call this good either. Like, I think she's kind of like, okay, she's here. Um, she's doing her thing. Um, I can't ever really remember a specific moment from her except for having that whack-ass lock on her door that's that even I feel like the like if you like were like on it you just took you know hot, some hot air just would fling that lock right open I'm like this that's some bullshit lock um, but you know I in this lineup I get why she wins here um, but it so I can't like hate on it because none of them are great, but um, yeah, uh, sure. Why not? Yeah. I was um, always kind of vaguely aware of who Eva Marie Saint was uh, just because she went to college in my hometown. So where I grew up is where she went to school. Um, and there's a theater or at least there used to be, maybe they've changed it by now, but there was a, a theater on that campus called the, the Eva Marie St. Theater, um, just called the Eva by people who knew it. So that's how I learned who she was. And I think it makes sense why she wins here in real life. Um, of the supporting ladies, she's the only one in a best picture winner and she, multiple cast members of hers uh, were nominated. So I guess it makes sense why she would win as well. And I think she's probably the most active as far as the supporting women go in her film. 
Um, she plays the most active role by comparison to the others. And I do like her in this film. Uh, she is pretty compelling. Um, her subplot is intriguing and it's a driving force that carries the story forward. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not exactly the thing that I'm leaving the film thinking about to echo you two. I'm much more interested in the supporting men, which is really strange. Uh, it's not very often where I leave a film thinking about the men, but yeah, I think, I think she's doing a pretty decent job here. It's very interesting watching movies from this time. Um, because she is one of those actors who seems to be bridging this gap between this old style of acting and the new style of acting that's coming through um, with people like Brando. Um, she seem, there seems to be like a, a realism to her that we would go on to see in years to come while also having a certain old star quality to her. So she seems, seems to be a mix of those two styles and I kind of dig it. But um, yeah, unfortunately, even despite all that, she's maybe the fourth person I think of when I think of this film. So who are you choosing supporting? Like, out of, like do you, who would you vote for? I think I lean more toward Carl Malden, but um, Rod Steiger is a pretty close runner up. He does a lot with his more limited screen time, but Carl Malden leaves a bigger impression on me. And then Kristoff, you said Lee J. Cobb. So we each yeah. have to vote for all three guys. Oh. Nice. Nice. Did anyone else have anything else on Eva Marie Saint? Not I. Not really, okay. no. Oh, okay then. <laughs> so uh, next we have uh, Nina Foch, uh, nominated for Executive Suite. She plays Erica Martin, the uh, assistant receptionist to a recently deceased executive. Um, and she wins the National Board of Review going into this. And that's pretty much her only big uh, nomination uh, going in. So you could say she was a possible threat for this, I guess. Um, so Joey, how do you feel about Nina in Executive Suite? You know, I didn't know anything about this movie when I had watched this the other day. And I was actually surprised to learn that Barbara Stanwyck was in it. I was very surprised to learn that Shelley Winters was in it. And what an ensemble, first of all, I feel like this would be like, if SAG was around, this would get an ensemble nomination, num number one. Number two, for having such an ensemble, they don't really do anything with these characters. The, the concept of the movie is actually pretty smart if you think about it. Like this big board meeting and then all of a sudden it's like an episode of succession and then it's like you know Barbara Stanwyck is I felt like many times are going to throw herself off the balcony of this building and you know it's really interesting and the character of first of all I don't know how to pronounce her last name so I'm just going to call her Nina Fuck because that's how I swear to fuck that you pronounce that but that's just me um so then you have Nina Fuck who's like this secretary and she's kind of like boss ass bitch like she kind of reminds me of like if emily from devil wears prada wasn't so camp like that is this character and she's not afraid to take like to to like be head bitch in charge so the character concept is there and nina does just fine but that's all she does is just fine. Like there's not, there's not like a moment in this film. It's not like when I talk about how some actors don't need a moment because the whole role is a moment. She's just there. Just like Shelly Winters is just there. 
And then all these white men are just there. Even Barbara Stanwyck, outside of throwing herself off this roof, which I swear to fuck, again, I five or six times I was like, oh, it's happening, is just there. And I'm like, and, and then apparently this became a TV show down the line in the 70s. And I'm like, what? So go Nina Fuck. Sure. Well, just as Joey said, um, Nina Fush doesn't really have a story arc of her own or a storyline of her own. She's there. She's the secretary who's wearing her pen like other people are wearing a crucifix. Um, she's a presence throughout much of the film, but she really has to convey her character through gestures and through her posture. Um, and I think it kind of works. I think she's actually, although she has less, less to work with than many other people in the film, um, she is actually creating a coherent character. Um, there is not a there's not much happening in the film. Uh, and I found myself drawn to her character the most from all of them, even although other people around her were going bigger or were hamming it up. I, I didn't find it hard to pay attention to her. Um, she doesn't really have any big moments. We see one scene of grief with her, but it's not really an overt breakdown. It's more a moment of her bottling up her emotion because the show must go on. There's another where she's laying out the conference table and realizing she's putting writing material on the place of her dead boss and then hesitating a moment. Th th these are these little character moments that she has. And she's she's building a character pretty much on the edges of the film, which I find quite interesting. And um, watching the film, I wish the film would give her more to do, would possibly give her a storyline of her own. Um, it's, it's really creating something out of almost nothing, which is why I appreciate she's here and which is uh, why I'm glad she's there. She, she's basically the one character I'll probably remember from this film, but I wish, I just wish she had more to do. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting on paper that she would be the one to be nominated when you have Barbara Stanwyck and Shelley Winters here in roles that draw more attention to themselves because Erica doesn't, for the most part, draw that much attention to herself as a character. And in a way, I actually kind of find the character a little bit sad, um, how devoted she is to this sort of Wall Street um, environment and this person who she used to work for. It's almost like she becomes somewhat lost when it becomes known that he has died. And um, I don't know, I, f I find that a little bit troubling. <laughs> I wish she didn't feel that way. But um, I think Nina does a pretty decent job of creating a real uh, well-rounded person. Uh, she has, she does have these very specific little moments that um, she's putting in as an actress to make Erica a real person that I kind of dig. And it wasn't really until I started thinking about it that it actually makes more sense than I realized that she would be nominated here instead of her flashier co-stars. Um, I'm not sure how uh, Stanwyck and Winters were campaigned. I mean, they're definitely supporting players, but this was that weird time and they were, you know, stars and whatnot. And maybe they didn't want to be nominated in supporting, I don't know. But um, I do think Nina Foch is doing a lot more work than you might 
that your common viewer might initially realize. And I kind of dig that. Yeah, it always feels like the the movie setting her up for like a big moment to happen, like to either have like that Jan Sterling taking off the makeup moment or like a real like uh, head bitch in charge moment. So it, it's always interesting that it never gives that for her. I don't know. That's just yeah. Yeah, I had seen this film before a long time ago, and honestly, revisiting it, I could I could not have told you who Nina played. It, it had been that long. And going back into this film, I, I was kind of waiting. It had been so long, I hadn't really remembered exactly how it plays out. And I was like, does she have a big breakdown moment? But she never really does. Not really. It's all kind of internal, and you're just sort of making um, inferences about the character and where she is mentally which is, you know, kind of interesting. Yeah, she's she's just there, but she does a lot with being just there. Mm-hmm. So she uh, she was the she was the character that was drawn towards the most, which says a lot for a film which also has the women you mentioned and Frederick March and many other much bigger names than Nina Nina Fuck to quote Joey. Yes, Nina Fuck. This poor woman. Our next lady is Katie Horado for Broken Lance. Uh, she plays Senora Devereaux, uh, a woman who is unfortunately married to Spencer Tracy. And her only nomination is the Oscar. So she doesn't really have any precursors going into this. So, Christoph, how do you feel about Katie Horado here? Uh, Katie Horado, that's, that's a bit tragic. I mean, Katie Horado built herself a Hollywood career out of minor and sometimes even marginal parts that were defined by an ethnicity, sometimes not even her own. Um, There's the one exception that is High Noon, where she gets a juicy part in a Hollywood movie, but more often than not, she's somewhere on the sidelines, doesn't get a lot to do, and a year before Broken Lance, she worked with Buñuel in El Bruto, The Brood, where she plays a juicy femme fatale, where she's truly great. And because it's a Mexican movie, she's not defined by her ethnicity, but just a woman. It's really a great movie and just shows how much Katie Horado could do. Um, I haven't mentioned this performance yet. The reason for this is she doesn't really get anything to do here she she's getting to stand next to Spencer Tracy with great posture and a somber expression and looking up to him and addressing him as my husband and she's playing the stereotype of the dignified noble unselfish Native American which is not her ethnicity um And it's actually strange because this film is basically about this being uh, a mixed race marriage about children. Not all of them are her children. Um, There's a lot of talk about her and you would expect her to have to do something here. You would have expected her to actually address it herself. But when she's on the screen, she's really just there she's trying to pour everything into the the few lines she has, but the film just doesn't do her any favors. Um, She is uh, 
Senora Devereaux. Uh, so she's a Mexican actress playing a Native American who is presenting as Mexican in the film. Um, she has one brief moment towards the end where she sort of breaks out and saying, no more of this, your brothers, but this is gone as soon as it arrives. And it, it feels like a film that should give her more chances, but she has absolutely nothing to do except stand there and look dignified. And it's so frustrating that an actress who could do so much more is relegated to a part like this. And um, the nomination is almost baffling considering how little she has to do and considering she didn't get nominations for well something like high noon where she got a lot more to do um i'm really not happy about this yeah so this year is pretty big when it comes to um women of color getting first time nominations you have katie here as mexican born you have Dorothy Dandridge as the first uh, Black Best Actress nominee. And it, this definitely feels like a nomination because we have to remember like um, Katie Wardo won the Golden Globe for High Noon. And I believe she was the first time a performer had won the Golden Globe and then not been nominated for the Oscar. So this feels like a makeup nomination very much in a la... Uh, Jezebel with Betty Davis uh, and not being nominated the year before for whatever the hell that movie was. And um, the thing is, is outside of my husband, she's not doing anything. Now, I actually had that thought and maybe I'm thinking of it wrong. Um, but I, I thought that I was like, wait, she's Mexican playing Native American. But then I remembered what year this took place in and the land that they're in. So Texas was a part of Mexico and the United States stole Texas from the Mexicans. Like Mexico used to go up all the way to the Texas border. So technically she is Native American. She's not playing outside of a race unless I'm totally looking into this wrong. Cause I thought the same thing. And I was like, mm, wait a minute, the time frame. So because there was a point where white men considered Mexicans Native Americans until the Alamo lines were drawn. So I don't know if she's playing outside her race, but maybe correct me if I'm wrong. But um, yeah, I, I had that same thought. But yeah, this doesn't give her anything to do. I kept waiting, like I like like just like Nina, just like Nina Fuck. And just like Eva Marie Saint, I kept waiting for something to happen, like uh, for a moment for there to be some big Oscar scene and there never was. And Spencer Tracy, man, get off the horse. Brandon, you're up. <laughs> um, so the character of Senora Devereaux is pretty underwritten. There's not really much there for her. Um, to work with. I guess she's bringing some passion and fire to it as best she can, but even still, it's not a whole lot. I understand she's someone who I think had a lot of, um, or at least she had an, enough respect in the industry to get this nomination. You know, she had done some things before some pretty, she'd worked with some big directors and uh, other co-stars of note in the recent years prior to this. So maybe all of that sort of culminated into her being recognized for this. 
but um yeah this is another one where i just kind of kept waiting for that moment she kind of gets it in the end she kind of does have a little bit of a an oscar scene if you will but even then it's kind of like half-assed a little bit and that's not just that's not really on her part that's sort of the movie just letting her down maybe um if the the scene had been built up to more and maybe if a the director had actually cared about her a little bit more maybe it would have made a little bit more of an impact but um for the most part i feel like she's really just uh trying to make lemonade with some sour lemons and this is kind of what happened and i i guess i respect what she was able to pull out but i'm not really blown away in any sense by it um i i don't think the movie respects her as much as she maybe respects the character that she's playing, if that makes sense. This is just very, I, I, like I said, it just, it, I think this is just a makeup nomination for not being there the year before. Cause she's amazing in High Noon. And we recently did The Men of 1984. She has a better part in Under the Volcano than she does here. Hmm. So like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Watch the brood. She's amazing and she's playing a femme fatale. And it's 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 just great to see what she can do if she isn't relegating to playing a stereotype. Yeah. Um yeah, that's that's all I got on that one. Well, next we have Jan Sterling nominated for The High and the Mighty. Uh, in The High and the Mighty, she plays Sally McKee, a sort of mail-order bride-type thing on her way to uh, her new husband. Um, in it, and she wins the Golden Globe going into this. So I guess she had that going for her. So, Joey, how do you feel about Jan Sterling in The High and the Mighty? So, <laughs> the first thing about this movie is... This was also something I knew nothing about going into it. And I was like, oh, the concept is there. Like, it, it felt like it was airport before airport as, like, the concept. But the whole, like, a movie like this is, like, committing the ultimate horror movie sin where you can't have a horror movie that's boring, and that's what this does. And it's so just like mundane. There's like a really weird character who's like fingering his wife in the one seat throughout this whole movie. And then they're in this tiny plane, but no one's noticing it. Then you have a guy who just walks up on this plane with a gun, like waving in the air. And then you have, they're like, first of all, it's taking 12 hours to fly from Hawaii to San Francisco, which is like, no. And then uh, 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 you have this really racist caricature of this Asian woman that I just like watched and was like shaking my head. And I'm like, of course it's in a John Wayne movie. And then you have Jan Sterling, who is this drag queen, <laughs> like full on taking off a makeup moment. Like, I feel like... I'm Jan Sterling in this movie with like this hot mess scenario she's in who's got like this crater face under it under all this makeup because she's so like older and she's freaking out and like 
Then you have this kid who's sleeping through this entire fucking charade and this like lesbian flight attendant who, by the way, I'm very surprised did not get a nomination here because if anyone is getting a nomination in the supporting category, it should have been the lesbian flight attendant. And then I'm like, what is happening? And then you have this like old woman who like got finger banged by an Islander or something. This is just drama in the sky, but it's never really interesting. And it's fascinating but so fucking boring and i that that's what doesn't make sense to me about this movie like there's so much happening to get your attention at some point and yet none of it is interesting and the most interesting about the thing about this movie it ends up being the end credits because you're like thank fuck that's over now jan sterling i haven't even gotten a jan sterling yet jan sterling I kept waiting for something to happen, like everybody else in this category. And then when it does, it like works for this character, but I'm never like wowed by it. And the only photo I could ever find in like the stills of this is like Jan Sterling with an eyebrow up here and she's like all fucked up and like shiny. And I'm like, what is going on? So when she's having like the, the, the makeup removing scene, it's like her big breakdown and it's like, okay, there's the Oscar moment, but is it memorable? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Um, so you know what, Jan Starling, good for you. My rant is done. So I guess it's time for my rant now. Um, Jan Sterling is a bit fighting the odds here because her character doesn't make much sense. Uh, she is playing a desperate former beauty queen who is old and haggard and ugly. And uh, we're supposed to think of her as old. Her character is 30 years old, which just for reference in a few weeks will be Joey years old. And we are sort of supposed to think that this old, old haggard bitch is desperate because she is so ugly and nothing in her life could actually change to turn it better again. Jen Sterling herself was 33 when she made when she made this movie. And I find it hard to believe that as Joey said, it it's she's basically a drag queen and then she has the big moment where she takes her makeup off. Um, and later again we see again the makeup has clearly been reapplied. Um, this the, her character doesn't make any sense. Her character is really strange, but somehow Jen Sterling finds a way to make it ridiculous in a way that seems intentional rather than just plain ridiculous. I think she, she makes this very weird character work in a way um, that I find her character one of the interesting spots in a film that has a lot of spots some of them a bit more interesting than others. Um, as Joey said, this is basically a disaster movie without much of a disaster actually happening in the story. Um, so air, um, Airport is basically an elevated version of The High and the Mighty, um, which is strange to say, but accurate, I think. Um, and Jen Sterling is getting one of those strangest characters and somehow makes it work. Uh, I'm not saying it's great, but at least it's more than I could say of other people in the film, possibly other people we might be talking about later. 
This uh, this movie should be more interesting than it is. Um, I agree with what Joey was saying earlier because there's so many components to it where it feels like there should be it should be far more compelling than it plays out on screen. And um, I think Jan Sterling is one of those things. Uh, I think she is pretty good here with what she has, but it is kind of weird. Like when she shows her uh, her old beauty queen picture and she's devastated because she thinks she doesn't look like that anymore. I was confused because I thought she looked exactly like her picture. Um, there's not really that big of a difference there. And um, I think she said it's like nine years old or something, the picture that she used to um, woo this man, which isn't really that crazy because I know I know gay men with grinder pictures that are more than nine years old. So it's really not that outrageous, I think. Uh, and I think she's she is probably the more interesting one of the two nominees from this film and maybe one of the more interesting ones in the film period. I thought her um, demasking, whatever you want to call it, where she's removing her makeup was really interesting. I actually kind of laughed a little bit because it seems so manufactured as a scene with all this makeup remover that I don't think you'd ever be allowed to take on a plane these days. She has so many little bottles of products that would probably be considered like ingredients for a bomb or something these days. And it kind of, uh, for some reason it reminded me of um, Lee Grant's scene in Voyage of the Damned where she's cutting her hair for some, remember that scene? It reminded me of that Jan Sterling taking off her makeup. Uh, but she doesn't have very much screen time, but I guess what she does with it is pretty memorable. Um, unfortunately, she's just, um, among all these other much less interesting people, uh, including what Joey had said about the uh, the Asian woman, who I felt so bad for her in this film. She has she has this these lines where she keeps calling herself stupid, and it, I honest I felt like genuinely bad for her. I was like, why are why are they making this woman refer to herself as stupid over and over again just by being someone who doesn't whose first language is not English and it's kind of upsetting, but it's a John Wayne movie. So I guess it's par for the course, but uh, yeah, I think Jan Sterling's doing pretty, pretty good work considering all those things. Also, I'm not a plane scientist, but I feel like opening the door at any point of a plane, whether you're 3000 feet in the air or two feet in the air, probably doesn't seem like a very safe idea. I don't think you can do that either. Like I'm not a physicist either, but when I was watching the film, I was like, I don't think that, I don't think that tracks. I think that's a problem. If you open the door when you're thousands of feet in the air. Oh, that was the 50s physics book definitely back then. Yeah. Again, um, John, John Wayne film yeah. rules don't apply. Yeah. Um, I think I, I might say something controversial here and um, this might probably be the most controversial thing ever said on this podcast to the point that there's a good chance that you might throw me off this zoom call immediately and edit me out of the episode so far but i don't hate john wayne i think there's a place in film history for him and for the character he plays this the kind of character that dads are naturally drawn to and i think there's a certain kind of role that he's really good at playing. It's a very small margin where he lies, like 
in Sylvester Stallone way, a certain kind of character when he plays the cowboy and a horse, he can do that very well. And as long as, as he's not trying to do, say, Genghis Khan, his films work and there are some really fine films about him. Um, so John Wayne is not someone who I say, if, the, if he's in the movie, I'm not watching it or who I hate. Uh, of course, he was a Republican, but I remember, I don't know, it was either Lauren Bacall or Kathleen Happen. Someone said John Wayne was the only Hollywood Republican she could talk to without hating his guts. Um, I think there are way worse people than John Wayne. And um, in the high and the mighty, it's not his usual kind of role, but I find him tolerable here. Um, and yeah, I hope you forgive me for saying these not negative things about John Wayne here. Well, I, I, I think it was funny when he was a uh, bitch slapping his co-pilots in the cockpit. <laughs> That did make me laugh a little bit. That's that's kind of funny. But I don't despise John Wayne. I'm not, you know, he's not someone who I rush out to see any film he's in. But I won't not watch a film because he's in it. I just generally don't care for him as a performer and as a person. But uh, but I don't hate him in the way that a lot of other people do. Well, in this same episode, we're going to be talking, we talked about John Wayne, and we're going to be talking about former Mrs. Ronald Reagan. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of Republican antidotes here, but um, I, Christoph, will not kick you off or block you yet, because you haven't, you haven't answered this regarding John Wayne. Would you have given him the Oscar for True Grit? I would not have given him the Oscar for True Grit, but blocked. But I don't mind the fact that he's an Oscar winner because, as I said, he's not the greatest of actors, but as a movie icon, he created something with his persona so that I don't mind that at some point in his career he won an Oscar. Would it have been better if he had won it for The Searchers? Obviously. Uh, but while I don't think he should have won for True Grid, I think it's fair that he did win, did win an Oscar at some point in his career. Okay. That's pretty much how I feel. I wouldn't give it to him for Trigger either, but it makes sense why someone like John Wayne would have an Oscar. Yeah. Even if it's not for a film or a, a, a year that I would have given it to him for. But um, to add in our next High in the Mighty Lady, it's uh, Claire Trevor. She is playing May Holst, a former... Uh, movie star, actress, what have you. And um, she doesn't really get any uh, precursors going to this besides you know, the Laurel Award, which was a thing back then. So, uh, Christoph, how do you feel about Claire Trevor in this film? Uh, I really don't like this performance. Um, for one thing, it's kind of strange to have her and Jen Sterling in the same movie because they feel like they are rooted in the same stereotype of the female has-been that just went different ways and you would expect these two characters to be merged to one at some point in the rewriting process. Um, that being said, I find what Claire Trevor is doing here so much less interesting than what Jan Sterling is doing. It's very one note, this self-proclaimed broken down broad who is sassy and tossing her fur coat all the time. Um, there's just not 
anything there. It's just the same thing she's getting over and she gets, she's giving us over and over again, just right until the end when she's giving us this what about us girls uh, uh, house with no mirrors in its speech, which comes out of nowhere, um, which feels as disconnected from anything she did before. Um, I, I, I don't, I, this, this character doesn't make much sense and Claire Trevor doesn't really help in creating something I'm interested in or rooting for. So I really do not like her in this movie. There's room for everybody to quote Gia Gunn. I mean, <laughs> okay. So I haven't seen Key Largo, which Claire Trevor won an Oscar for, but I have seen Dead End. And if Sylvia Miles is the queen of Oscar cameo nominations, Claire Trevor is the Oscar queen of do nothing for bitch ass role nominations because what the fuck? I don't get it. I, I just am like, what is she doing? Yeah, sure. She has that one like moment that Christoph mentioned near the end, but it's like, for what? For what? The lesbian flight attendant was right there. For what? So this is just another moment in this lineup where I'm just like, sure, cool, okay. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that this nomination came because it was Claire Trevor. Um, I think there was just probably some goodwill for her. And if I recall correctly, she, for some reason, has second billing in this film, I think. If I remember that correctly, I could be mistaken. But I think she is billed second after John Wayne. And that could just be because of her status as an actress at the time. But she doesn't really have that much to do. Like, Jan Sterling's nomination makes more sense to me. She makes more of an impact. Uh, with Trevor, I feel like there's a couple other actresses from this film who could have been nominated ahead of her and it would have made more sense based on the performances and the impression that they leave you with like the flight attendant or the or the the woman who's constantly like devastated the other female pastor who's just constantly crying and i was just waiting for people to start slapping her like in airplane where they just start beating the shit out of that woman who won't stop crying i thought maybe that's what airplane was making fun of but that unfortunately never happened not to, you know, endorse abuse on an airplane, but I don't know, maybe this movie could have used it. Um, it's Claire Trevor's fine. I mean, I don't think she's actively bad by any means, but she's not exactly doing anything that I feel warrants a nomination. She's just okay. And that's pretty much all I've got on it. She's just there. Yeah. She's fine. <laughs> She's Claire Trevor. Yeah. I like her a lot in Key Largo. But she, she, in this... she in Key Largo. <sighs> I, I recall liking her in Key Largo. It's been a long time since I've seen it. And I thought she was quite good in Dead End with, you know, the one scene that she had. I thought she did very well with. But this is, uh, I, think, I, I think she's only nominated three times, right? Yeah. This, I think so. Dead End and Key Largo. This is definitely third place for me of her three nominations. Um, I think she lives, leaves a much better impression her other two nominations. That's, 
I hope, yeah. I haven't seen Key Largo yet, but right now, Claire Trevor is not holding up on these nominations for me. So maybe one day, one day if I get to Key Largo, when I get to Key Largo, I'll see for, you know, what she won for. Because these nominations that she's been nominated for, not Bruss. Oh, God, that was rough. Boys? It was. Yeah, that, that was a rough one. Uh, shall we get to the heavy hitters? Yes, please. Okay. So as a reminder, your nominees for the 1954 Best Actress were Dorothy Dandridge in Carmen Jones, Jane Wyman in Magnificent Obsession, Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina, Judy Garland in A Star is Born, and Grace Kelly in The Country Girl. Let's start with Jane Wyman as Helen Phillips in Magnificent Obsession. This is her third of three nominations. And going into Oscar night, she has no precursors. Um, So there's that. In Magnificent Obsession, Jane plays a woman who becomes a widow right in the beginning and then is really pissed off in this small area of Big Sur in California um, when Richie Rich Rock Hudson uh, kind of is the reason why her husband's dead. So she resents him. Then he tries to woo her and apologize. And then he causes her to be in an accident. And it's like one tragedy after another. And then she's blind. And then she's in Europe. And then she gets like something with pressure on her head. And then she runs away for like 10 years or apparently, and then just pops back up. It's, it's, it's a lot. So Christoph, what are your thoughts on Jane Wyman here for her third and final nomination? Well, the second time we are talking about a Douglas Oak movie here on this podcast. Um, Douglas Oak movies require a specific kind of acting because uh, they are, melodramas that are very much stories like soap operas. They are over-the-top, melodramatic, um, very silly, very hard to believe, but treated very earnestly. I mean, uh, there, there, there are moments which look quite campy. I mean, the car accident that renders her blind, the only injury we actually see on the screen is that a car drives past her and she crashes crashes apparently into the door and slams her to the ground and then suddenly she's blind after that without any other apparent injuries um there must be quite a temptation for an actress to ham it up to really go for it and uh to go over the top and campion jane wyman doesn't do this at all she's playing it very earnestly she's playing it uh, very sincerely she's possibly hemming it up at the end a bit, but uh, for most of the time, she's playing it uh, with a lot of dignity. And I think it works very well here because uh, while her performance itself is mostly subtle, the film around her is not, the music is really going there. The storyline is ridiculous. Um, She herself doesn't go for the camp, although it must have been quite a temptation to go there. And I really like how this is working for this specific film, for this specific ridiculousness around her, for the fact that she eventually has to fall for Rokatsun, who not only is responsible for killing her husband, but is also responsible for her being blind. Um, a minor detail, I think her blind acting isn't really bad as well. I think I've seen much worse blind acting, especially in old Hollywood. Um, I think this is a really good performance that works very well for the material and makes for an interesting contrast to everything that's around her in this movie. 
Yeah, I pretty much agree. Um, I feel like this performance could have been much uh, more over the top in another performer's hands uh, because there is something a little phony about the setup. I, I did think it was kind of funny how she became blind by falling over. Because, uh, I mean, the... If, I mean, the car doesn't exactly collide with her. I mean, it doesn't appear as though it really has any uh, devastating effect on the rest of her body. And yet somehow she's blind and then somehow the pressure is relieved in the end years later and she gets her vision back. It's all kind of silly. But um, I think she plays it very straight. Um, in a movie that is kind of bonkers sometimes. Um, and I kind of dig that. I like that she plays it sort of uh, sincerely, I guess you could say. Um, I kind of wonder what a performance that matched the, f the, uh, the heights of this film would have looked like. But I dig that she you know, played it more down to earth, made it a little bit more believable. Um, it's the funny thing about Douglas Sirk is so often with his films, it seems like his stories are right on the brink of being too much. Like you're all, they're almost just barely unbelievable. And yet somehow he keeps it on the line of belie believability. And I think Jane Wyman is one of the things that helps keep the film there on the believability side, um, because she plays it so straight, uh, so I, I guess I kind of dig it. It's not exactly my favorite Cirque film, uh, but I think Jane Wyman is part of the reason why it works for me. Um, so yeah, Mrs. Ronald Reagan, here she was. And the funniest part about that divorce side note is that he was the Democrat at the time and she was the hardcore Republican and that's why they got divorced. That's funny to note. Um, anyway, the thing is, is she's not bad here at all. She's actually really good for the material. The material is what is so ridiculous. Like, it's like, if there is the word, if there's a word like drama, this movie is drama. Like everything is just so over the top. And it's like, it's like, let's put all the Lifetime movies into one and call it Magnificent Obsession. Like it's, it's, it, it's kind of just so ridiculous and rock hudson rest in peace my dude loved him in um pillow talk pillow talk yeah loved him in pillow talk getting drunk with thelma ritter my queen in that movie love that this is not it though for him um but yeah i think she's good she's just um the, the material is not working for her, but she's working with what she's got, and I uh, I salute her. I mean, you're right. Douglas Sirk is an acquired taste, and he's uh, certainly not for everyone. And many of his films work for me, uh, but uh, he's treading a very fine line between melodrama and camp. And uh, in his best films, this works very well. And I think it works quite well here. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think I prefer Jane Wyman in this than I did in Johnny Belinda. Um, 
I don't know if you've seen Johnny Belinda Joey, but mm-hmm. um, it's been a minute. But I re- I recall not exactly caring for her in that film, and that's you know the one that she won for. But um, I think she's better here in this one. I think this is a better showing of what she's capable of. How do you feel I about that, Christoph? I think this is my favorite of her nominations. I it, it's a while since I've seen Johnny Belinda, but uh, I prefer this. Uh, I forgot her third nomination, so this mm-hmm. can't have been too great. The the yearling. Oh yes, it's definitely my favorite nomination. The blue veil. Oh you... right, we haven't gotten to that one. I think I said three nominations too. It is four because I forgot the yearling. Yeah. Whoops. Anything else, boys? Well, there's also one scene of her driving a car, and there's something about Douglas Sirk ladies driving cars. She's not oh, quite okay. as as much as Dorothy Malone, who's just hanging her hands over the steering wheel and going up and down with them. Uh, but uh, act, driving acting in Douglas Sirk movies is always interesting. Yeah, um, I forgot about the Dorothy Malone drive. We, I noted that too on the last time we did this. Uh, yeah. Go, go, Jane. Go, Jane. Uh, and go, Agnes. Oh, uh, I, that's right. I totally cut our forget- Queen Agnes Moorhead. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Gotta, gotta, gotta love a good Agnes Moorhead moment. Um, all right. Moving on. We have this year's winner, Grace Kelly, as Georgie Elgin in The Country Girl. This is her second of two nominations. And again, she wins here, uh, apparently by six votes over Judy Garland. So going into Oscar night, or her precursors, uh, were the BAFTA nomination for actress. She wins the Golden Globe for actress in a drama. And she has a New York Film Critics Association win for actress. And in The Country Girl, Grace again plays Georgie, who is the the titular role of The Country Girl, or a girl from the country, as she says specifically in the movie. And she is the wife to Bing Crosby, who's a drunk, and it's her trying to deal with her husband, his drunkenness, and the loss of their son, and it's drama with a capital D. So, Brandon, country girl, thoughts? So, Grace Kelly's having a bit of a year here in 1954. You know, she's got two pretty big Hitchcock films. Rear Window and Dial In for Murder. And she's got a couple other films that are not quite as well known. So she's definitely, you know, on the marquees across the country for a few different movies. And so for that reason, I guess I could see why the success and the name recognition could carry over um, into Oscar recognition. I don't hate this performance in the way that it seems like some people on the internet do. I think she's doing fine. It's a more complex character than I think you might initially realize, but I don't know that Grace Kelly is fully tapping into the complexities of this character. Um, Because it's someone whose motives I seem to be constantly questioning, wondering, is she this Lady Macbeth type character to the Bing Crosby husband? Is she trying, is she the thing that's keeping him afloat or is she actually trying to destroy him? There's a lot going on with this person that I don't know that the movie is fully interested in exploring or they're trying to leave it on a more um, ambiguous note that doesn't really come together for me. I don't know. But um, I, 
I feel like this is a performance that would have been better played in someone else's hands, but I don't think that Grace Kelly is completely failing either. Um, I kind of like seeing this side of her because really my Grace Kelly experience outside of the country girl is mainly Hitchcock films and um, high society. Those are pretty much the only Grace Kelly films I'm aware of that I've seen. So this sort of darker, more devious side of her, I think is kind of cool to see, but um, I don't think it's as good as it could have been. Um, I have only watched The Country Girl one time before. There was many years ago. And actually upon this rewatch, I did change my mind about what I think of Grace Kelly's performance in it. Because the way I remembered it was that Grace Kelly was delivering actually a very good performance and her win is unfairly maligned because of who she lost to, about who she won over. Upon this rewatch, however, I realized that I don't really like that performance all that much as I remembered it. Um, fr from the moment we first see her, where she's opening the door and wearing glasses, which is probably the universal sign of someone de-glamming and being frumpy and then putting her right on her head right after that. All I could ever see was Grace Kelly playing a character. I found it very hard to accept her as the character she was playing. Part of it probably because she was very much miscast. She was 24 years old when she played this and at some point she's saying she has been taking care of Bing Crosby for 10 years which would have made her very much a teenage bride. Um, I just found it hard to really see her as anything other than an actress making acting choices and rather than an actress actually embodying the character. I think she eased a bit into it in the second half of the film when she was also allowed to be a bit more glamorous, which maybe was her more natural self. Um, but throughout the film, I actually... I actually had to force myself to pay attention to her because I was so captivated by what Bing Crosby was doing all the time. And if Bing Crosby is stealing a film from you, it's probably not a sign that you're doing excellent work here. Uh, the Country Girl is very much Bing Crosby's movie for me. Um, she, uh, Grace Kelly was doing a lot better work that year in Rear Window. Um, so maybe I understand this Oscar as a combination for all the films she was doing this year, but what she's doing in The Country Girl just didn't really work for me. I'm very sorry to say that, but um, I, I, I wish I could have defended her. I really wanted to defend her, uh, her performance here, but after this rewatch, I just cannot. So believe it or not, this was my first Grace Kelly movie. I, I, I have never seen a singular Grace Kelly film outside of this. So, you know, going into this, the pussy's on the pedestal pretty high, right? For Grace Kelly. This is community theater, mama. This is, she is terrible in this. She is so hammy with the over-the-top lines, the cue card reading of these line deliveries, where she literally goes from 24 years old to that moment where she's like, don't touch me. And she like scrunches her face and she looks 50 years old. I'm like, this is not good. I was so shocked that this was an Oscar win. I was like, 
maybe I actually am not that shocked because I really don't agree, especially in the actress category, many times with the Academy. With that said, this is not good. This is like embarrassingly bad. And I just could not understand why people voted this. Again, I didn't know that this was a big year for her. So Brandon, you just gave me that information. So maybe this is like her Jessica Lang and Tootsie thing where it's like, we got to give it to her for like a combination of things. This is community theater acting in like Rancho Cucamonga, middle of fucking nowhere, come to our playhouse in our basement type of acting because this is not good. No, 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 no. Yeah, I want I want to like this one more. I feel like Grace Kelly has the potential, or she would she would have had the potential to make this into something interesting. And maybe if she had been cast a little bit later in life, because she is she's she's a bit young <laughs> to be playing this part. Um, and I don't know if I don't know that much honestly about George Seaton who directed this film. I don't uh, I don't know that much about his directing style, but I wonder what someone like a George Cukor would have done. I feel like he would have maybe made this character a little bit more interesting from the directorial side because there's, there's just something missing here. Cause I feel like all the pieces are there, but they're just not coming together to form the jigsaw puzzle. This needs to be, they're just separate pieces in a box. William Wyler, I think would have been really good for this character. Yeah. Him too. Yeah. Uh, Christoph, do you have anything else on Grace Kelly? Uh, I wouldn't agree she's quite as bad as you're making her sound to be, but she's just not good. Uh, and I'm I'm shocked that you have never watched Rear Window. Mm-mm. I've seen Secret Window with Johnny Depp, though. Yeah, that's the wrong window movie. The wrong window. Yeah. Isn't there like a rear window, too? The, the one we're talking about? Is that the one you just said? Yeah. Ooh, I think I, yeah. just, had, I, think I just had a stroke. Yeah. Rear Window, the one by Hitchcock with this actress Grace Kelly in it. Have you heard of her? I totally just had a stroke. Leave me alone. It's almost and, 2 a.m. here. And James Stewart. Jimmy. Um, and Thelma Ritter. I love that. Thelma. Yes. I love Thelma Ritter. She she has like Thelma a- Ritter, who should have been in this supporting lineup for Rear Window. I give Thelma Ritter at least two Oscars thus far. I need one more in her filmography. All right, moving on then. Moving on. Um, let Let's go to Dorothy Dandridge making history here as Carmen Jones in Carmen Jones. This is her sole nomination and she gets a BAFTA nomination for Best Actress. Now, this is not a precursor for her, but I do want to note because I found this really interesting. Carmen Jones wins at the Globes for Best Picture Musical Comedy, but she's not even nominated there. So interesting. Um, especially because Judy Garland ends up winning that category, which we'll get to in a little bit. But um, in Carmen Jones, this is a musical, which I did not know when I'd seen this for the first time, like a decade ago, I just was like, sure, why not put this on? Um, But this is a musical that tells the story of a woman letting a guy, Harry Balafonte, chase her and she chases him back and they fall in love and things aren't going to work and then things work. And it's like that total love story uh, just put to music. And um, Christoph, what are, what are our thoughts here on our history-making nominee? 
the, the interesting thing about this nomination for me, uh, apart from the history making and so on, the interesting thing is Carmen Jones is a titular character of this film. And on paper, her character is very thin. She is the shameless vixen, a seductress who wants to fuck all men in general and Harry Belafonte in particular, who doesn't care about the damage she does. But that's her pretty much throughout the film. The, the film doesn't give her a character arc to work with or a, any potential for change. Um, and it really is Joe, the character played by Harry Belafonte, who has an arc, who uh, has more to work with really, but still it's Dorothy Dandridge who walks away with the film. Dorothy Dandridge doesn't get, doesn't get much to work with on paper and she's creating this wonderful character who has so much energy, who is, has so much fire, who is having so much fun on the screen, who, who's giving a performance that's, that's really very carnal in a way, especially for a 1950s film. This, this, this woman is sex, this woman wants sex. She, although, although she is fully dressed almost throughout, except for a scene where she's, she's painting her toenails, she is believable as the slut who really wants, uh, wants to have sex. This, this scene early in the film where she's serenading Harry Belafonte as he is driving her, she's his prisoner, she's driving her, and you just believe her that she just wants him to pull over so, so she can give him a blowjob finally. And I didn't, it, it's kind of surprising to see this much sexuality in a film from 1954 and she is selling that it's just a joy to watch it's a wonderful performance uh with a character that in other hands could have been so much lesser and as you say it's a musical it's basically an opera with lyrics translated into english um sung by someone else and she's lip-syncing them um, I didn't mind that at all because of course with such thing as there's an inherent danger that you just see someone moving her mouth. Um, it didn't feel like that. She, she, she it, it felt natural the way she did it. Um, and I really like this as a full package. Uh, Dorothy Dandridge very much deserved this Oscar nomination. She does, she's doing, she's doing great things here and she's turning a character that could have been so much less into something very compelling. Yeah, this is a performance where I feel like in another year, this could have been a slam dunk win um, for her. Because uh, this is this really is a full package performance, um, much like another actress we're going to get to in a few minutes, where I feel like Dorothy Dandridge is really just firing on all cylinders in this film. Because uh, she is just, you know, sex incarnate. And she's quite the performer, uh, and she's also supported by a pretty solid supporting cast. I mean, to mention a couple other people who probably should have been in this lineup instead of the people we got, uh, Pearl Bailey and Diane Carroll are also fantastic in this film. And this could have been an even more historically significant year if we had just nominated them instead of a couple of these ladies that we got. Uh, so there's a lot of things working for her here. Um, I'm vaguely familiar with the, the the opera Carmen that this is, you know, inspired by. Um, I'm, I'm not crazy about the way this film ends, um, but I understand, you know, it's based, it's coming from 
a source material. But um, I wish Carmen, the character, had been maybe more respected by the storytellers in the end. Perhaps then uh, better things may have come for Dorothy Dandridge, perhaps, because it seems like the movie almost punishes her in a way for all of the great things that we're praising her for, um, being this sort of sex-positive um, minx-type character that we sort of adore. Uh, because, I mean, it's a fantastic character. And then in the end, I just kind of feel let down because I, uh, the movie's kind of, uh, it rejects a lot of the things that make this character really great. But um, that's, of course, not uh, Dorothy Dandridge's fault because uh, she really turns it out in just about every way possible here. Yeah, I mean, remember, this is during the Hayes Code. So this was like the, the ending for this film was like the punishment of the quote-unquote whore and the one who sleeps around and everything. And that is even coming from the source material. It's kind of interesting that the time this was made because, I mean, this is amazing. This is such a full-throttle performance. And first of all, side note, who wouldn't want to give Harry Balafonte a blowjob in this movie? during this time period absolutely in the car like pull over daddy i got you second of all diane carroll pearl bailey pearl bailey who we get to talk about again we talked about her in our pilot episode with the uh with the landlord so it's so great to come back to her all this time later and be like she's still fucking rocking it in 1954 all the way through her career like it's so good um Dorothy Dandridge is just beautiful in this movie. It, it, it is one of those performances. And I remember asking this actually on Kevin Jacobson's show. Hey, Kevin. Um, when he had Daniel Brilliant on and I had mentioned, I was like, I the question I put for and the runner-up is, was do you think Dorothy Dandridge's um, historic nomination in this year is overshadowed with the Judy Garland drama with Grace Kelly and Daniel Brilliant and him both said, no, I got to disagree because people, unless they're reminded about this, unless you're like hardcore Oscar, you know, people forget about Dorothy Dandridge here because it's all about Judy Garland losing the Oscar. And I think that's very disservice to Dorothy Dandridge because not only is she making history here, but she is literally making history in such a magnificent role. And I hate to throw shade like this, but unlike Katie Huardo, who is making history in a very forgettable role, Dorothy Dandridge is the victim of the Judy Garland drama here. And that's really sad because Dandridge is not only believable, she's wonderful, she's a vixen, she's a little minx. Again, giving Harry Belafonte blowjobs in the car. I get it. I get it. I get it. It's cool. But like, she's chef's kiss here. And I fucking love her. That's what I have to say on it. Fully agreed. And justice for Pearl Bailey. Boom. Yeah. I, I would have been fine with Pearl and Diane being nominated for this, but if I had to pick one, I think Pearl Bailey makes more sense as a standout supporting nom nominee. So that's yet another film where Pearl Bailey was robbed. The Landlord, of course, being the other one that we discussed on this show. Yep. Uh, a great movie that she's in too, actually, with the recently departed Sydney Poitier too, is Poor Jane Bus. And Dorothy Dangers is also in that. 
Moving on, we have Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina as Sabrina. This is her second of five nominations. Go uh, with Oscar, you know, going into that night. She has a BAFTA nomination for actress and a New York Film Critics Association nomination for actress. In Sabrina, again, she plays the titular role, who is a little girl who has a crush on a really rich man who then is sent to Paris and is just obsessed with this man, comes back as a woman and goes after this man again, but falls in love with her brother when her brother's doing really rapey things to get her to like get her to kiss him. And like, I don't know what we'll talk about this, but then she falls in love with the brother. It's, it's, I don't know. It's again, really rapey. Um, but Brandon, your thoughts, Audrey Hepburn, wait, Brandon, Christoph, Christoph, Brandon, someone's up. It's late. I had a stroke. One of you go. I love Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn is one of my favorite icons of cinema. Something about her just hits me in a very sweet part, in a very sweet spot. Um, this innocence and this purity that she portrayed, the sweetness, but also always a hint of a deep melancholy that's somewhere in there, the sense of sadness that she's having, uh, that she's portraying. Um, she, she brings all this to her roles and from her roles. Sabrina is alongside Roman Holiday in Breakfast at Tiffany's, one of the three defining performances I see from her. Um, she, oh, I mean, early in the film, there's this very impossible scene, this the, the cutest suicide attempt in film history, uh, where she's trying to die from carbon monoxide poisoning and then shushing the car for making too much noise. Um, it's, this is this is a scene that I, I not many actresses can pull this off, and it feels so natural to her to play this scene, which is actually very tragic. So funny that also at no point you feel any real sense that she might be dying from this. Also, she's a titular character and wouldn't die this early in the film. Um, but then she goes to Paris and then she comes back and her glee when she meets the William Holden character again, who she had a crush on and he doesn't even remember her. And she she's just delighted in suddenly seeing him being interested in her. Um, this is very quintessential Audrey Hepburn. You might say she's not going out of her comfort zone here. You might say that this is uh, very much uh, her shtick and you're probably right with that. But as an Audrey Hepburn fan and Audrey Hepburn apologist, this is just the kind of thing I'm craving. I mean, she has seen partners, William Holden, uh, she has great chemistry with him. Uh, there's Humphrey Bogart where she has different kind of chemistry. I mean, he's 30 years older than she is. She's 55 to her 25. Um, and I mean, there's a reason Audrey happens so often had uh, on-screen love interests who were much, much older than her and old enough to be her father, because there's this special kind of chemistry where, I mean, it's not a Dorothy Dandridge situation. At no point in this film do you think, oh, she wants to fuck Humphrey Bogart. But you could totally get the sense that she somehow wants to share something with him. Um, this is, this is my kind of thing. I absolutely love this. I can understand when someone says she's not doing much more than being her Audrey Hepburn shining thing, but this is what I love. This is what I'm drawn to. 
this is just exactly the reason why I love Audrey Hepburn so much. So yes, give me more of this, give it to me. I actually quite like Audrey Hepburn in this film. Um, I, I unfortunately am one of those people who's not in, who's not super enthusiastic about Audrey Hepburn. She's just been one of those icons from this era of Hollywood who I just never really clicked with. Um, but here in Sabrina, I feel like a lot of the things that make her great are being played to in a very um, wise way. I did laugh when she shushed the car for being too loud during her, her suicide attempt. There are very few actors who I think can take a scene where a character is trying to kill themselves and make it funny. Um, it reminded me a little bit of um, Sissy Spacek in Crimes of the Heart. Uh, her sequence of trying to kill herself not very successfully and making it sort of darkly comedic. Um, but I think Audrey Hepburn is, she's working really well in this film. Um, this is another one kind of like Jan Sterling where I don't quite see the age happening. Like when she goes, when she's, when she goes away to Paris and then comes back, everyone makes it seem like she's changed so much and then she looks completely different and they hardly recognize her. But I'm watching it thinking that's very definitely the same person. I don't know what everyone's seeing that, uh, apparently changed so dramatically but um i think audrey hepburn really works in this in this mode here in sabrina i think this might have been my first time watching it all the way through i think back way back when i was going through billy wilder's films whatever copy of sabrina i got from the library was a bad dvd and it was very scratched and skippy so i never i don't think i ever actually saw the movie in its entirety um and so this is my first time actually sitting through it from beginning to end. And I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. Um, Cause I, I really like Billy Wilder, but I, then, like I said earlier, I've never really been crazy about Audrey Hepburn. So I didn't know how I would feel, but um, it works really well. Uh, I think she's, she's bringing her very specific Audrey Hepburn isms to this character and um, making it her own in a way that stands out that, doesn't feel like she's just duplicating previous Audrey Hepburn roles. Well, first of all, I'm very excited to get Kristoff's reaction when Rooney Mara plays Audrey Hepburn in this movie that they're doing. Um, because I know as Rooney Mara being my favorite actress, I am very excited to see this. And you with loving Audrey Hepburn, I'll be very excited to see your reaction to this. So that'll be great. Um, this was also my first time, well, this was my first time, I should say also because neither of this was your first time, but this was my first time watching Sabrina. And honestly, full disclosure, I fully had no idea what this movie was about. I honestly thought it was maybe like about Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I know. I know. Stop laughing. But I was very charmed by it until uh, Herman Munster by a uh, full-on Humphrey Bogart over there who looks like Frankenstein in full makeup when he's just himself. Um, again, found it very rapey, but like, I'm my brother standing and I'm going to do this for you and it's still kissing my brother. Also, William Holden is having a hell of a year. Um, so there's that. Also, the funniest part in this movie for me was actually when Audrey is in Paris and the family back home is writing the letter 
or is reading the letter and she's like, they're reading like, I've met a count. Oh, that's great. But I miss David. Well, that's not so great. But I ripped up David's uh, picture. Well, that's great. But please send me a scotch tape to fix it. Well, that's not so great. I thought that was really funny. I thought that was cleverly, cleverly written. And the acting in that is superb by the by the house uh, help. Um, so that was great. Audrey is wonderful here. She's so adorable. I like this a lot better than like something like her Wait Until Dark nomination. Um, and I like this in the lines of her Breakfast at Tiffany's. I haven't seen Roman Holiday yet, so I can't, I can't comment on that. But I really enjoyed this one from her. She's funny. It's adorable. I don't buy the whole like, I've been away. I'm this woman now type thing. It's just, that's not real here. Um, it's definitely Audrey Hepburn. I like that she named the dog David. <laughs> I also don't understand how David doesn't understand he's driving to his house. Make that make sense. Um, but I just think all around, this is a really good nomination. And I really, really, really think she's pitch perfect in this role. Like, I, I don't see how anyone else could be cast in this. I know there was a, there was a remake. Uh, in the mid nineties, but this material feels so dated, like it can only work in this era. So I don't know how the remake really is. I also would like to note that there's no way in hell you can make a martini with creme de menthe. So William or uh, William Holden or whoever the hell it was, Humphrey Bogart is absolutely insane. That's disgusting. Um, but yeah, I think this is this is a great nomination. So happy to hear that. Christoph, yeah. do you have anything else on it? Uh, not about Audrey Hepburn, but Walter Hampton, who is playing the father of William Holden and Humphrey Bogart, very nearly steals this film as the old guy who's just trying to secretly smoke. And I am astounded no one ever mentions this performance. I love it. Well, the olive, the olive bit is very good. Really funny. Oh, too. yeah. I sat on the olives. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and let's get to our final nominee, uh, the one who really caused us to go here this year, uh, Judy Garland as Vicky Lester in A Star Is Born. A Star Is Born. This is the first of her two nominations. Um, I know uh, Brandon, you and I both agreed actually, Judgment at Nuremberg that she should have won there. Uh, so, Mr. Nuremberg himself, I'm going to be interested to hear your thought on that real quick when you get to her. Uh, she wins the Golden Globe for Comedy Musical Actress and is New York Film Critics Association's nominee for Best Actress um, in A Star is Born. This is a remake of the original um, starring... Janet uh, Gaynor. Janet Gaynor. Wow. Mind is clearly going. Once I hit 30, it's just, you know, I'm still alicing myself the whole way through. Um, Janet Gaynor. And this is, this takes the original material and excels it into a more of a tr the tragedy aspect of the love story in my opinion of uh rising star girl meets boy boy's a mess girl helps boy boy kills himself you know the normal um so let's talk brandon i believe you're up now so um, I think it makes sense why a lot of people say this is one of the biggest losses in Oscar history. Because like, you know, Dorothy Dandridge in Carmen Jones, this is another performance that is sort of firing on all cylinders. 
and it seems um, made for Judy Garland. Of, of course, this is not, you know, a shot for shot remake of the original Star is Born. They definitely reworked it, uh, made it specific to uh, a musical uh, performer like Judy Garland. And um, it seems as though all the things that make Judy Garland unique and great are on display here in this film. Um, you know, she, she gets her big musical numbers. She gets to actually act dramatically and she has some humorous moments and there's some funny mixed tones going on here. Like when she has her more emotional breakdown and I think it's a dressing room where they, where they have her dressed in this like raggedy and sort of get up with these paint with these makeup freckles and whatnot while she's having this uh very tender moment it's kind of funny to watch but in a way that uh makes sense for this character and what she's going through so it all kind of works even though it sometimes feels like it shouldn't um and even though this movie is very large and very long i feel as though judy garland carries it um she doesn't ever seem to slip um, when it comes to leading this film. And uh, I definitely understand why there's a lot of people who say this is maybe one of the most heartbreaking losses in this category's history. Uh, Christoph, how do you feel? Judy Garland is not an actress here. She is a steamroller. She is taking this movie she is going through it she is throwing herself in it she is throwing in it everything she's got this is this is just undeniable i mean a story like a star is born can only work if we never have the slightest doubt that vicky lester is a star and she never lets us doubt for a single moment that she is and sure the film is very much tailored to her talents. It throws an almost excessive numbers of uh, excessive amount of musical numbers towards her way in the movie that she stars in, uh, the way she croons her husband, the wedding night. Uh, she is amazing in those scenes. Of course, she's Judy Garland, but also the acting moment in between, the chemistry she has with James Mason. Um, this, this is everything that people say it isn't more because uh, it's it's just hard to watch this movie and not care about what she's doing. She is giving it her all. She's spilling all her guts into this. This scene where she has a breakdown moment in the funny makeup works on several levels at once. Um, as Brandon said, I understand everyone who's totally heartbroken how someone who is giving so much in this movie and is carrying such a large movie from beginning to end uh, loses the Oscar, especially to this performance she lost against. This is amazing. I, 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 I have nothing else to say. If the country girl performance is community theater, this is the Oscar go to cream of the crop, pussy on the pedestal performance that is just the one that should be referenced and taught 
and studied and is on the level of someone like I always have said like my favorite nominated performance of all time is Ellen Burstyn in Rocking for a Dream and I and I still stick with that and I would I always have said like that performance needs to be studied for me this is at that level this is even maybe beyond Ellen here and it really truly is if I'm being honest I think I just have a a love for Requiem that's why it's there for me um but with that said this is heartbreaking this is a heartbreaking performance there's this is a heartbreaking story behind this loss there's a heartbreaking you feel maybe it's because we know what Judy Garland was going through in her life that adds the heartbreak to this. It feels like when the character loses her man and her, the character has that breakdown. It's like, we're not watching Vicky Lester or watching the little girl we grew up with in the wizard of Oz having her therapy session with us like she's letting us in in a way that we're not supposed to understand outside of this moment it's it's so good it's so mind-blowingly good and it doesn't make sense that something like this loses on paper it doesn't make sense um, if there is ever a time to recall the vote and have another count, I feel like this would have been it because it doesn't feel like this should go down in the, in the history books as an Oscar losing performance. This is what an Oscar winning performance looks like. This is what it should be. And it's so sad because she's so good here. There, there's, there's not a moment that I don't feel for her. And again, I feel for her as Judy Garland, as Vicki Lester. Um, she's just fantastic. And I just, it doesn't make sense to me how this loses. This is not a losing performance. I know it seems so manufactured to be an Oscar winning performance and not in a way that I dislike. Sometimes, yeah. you know, a performance, a film seems designed for the Oscar. And, you know, it kind of rubs me the wrong way because it seemed like they're really trying to go for that. Here, it seems like they were putting all the pieces together in order for it to be the big Oscar player that it should have been. And I think it actually works, especially for Garland. Yeah. Um, I mean, her character literally wins an Oscar in the movie. Right. And this, this, this should have worked. This should have worked. I, I always will not understand. I mean, maybe maybe I do understand because it's so personal to her, but I feel like the Barbara version that we got in the 70s really should have been done by Liza in a closer version to what this did because I feel like that would have been so interesting to see mother and then daughter. True. That Barbara version is not good at all. It's really... Um... With that said, Christoph, are you Judy Garland in Judgment at Nuremberg? Or are you on the Rita Moreno train? Or are you someone who's going to surprise us and be like, Una Merkel should have won? 
Uh, I think it's definitely her in Judgment in Nuremberg. She only has this one brief scene, but she's doing so much in it. Um, um, I think Judgment at Nuremberg should have won both supporting categories that year. I'm not so much a fan of Maximilian Schell's performance. I, I don't mind his win, but it's the two supporting categories that it should have won. Yeah. You're more of a man in the glass booth for Maximilian Schell. <laughs> Apparently, yes. I remember. I remember. Also, um, can I say I'm happy that I'm here, that the episode that I'm as a guest is also an episode we talk about a film starring the guy from The Verdict. <laughs> you have never let me down or never. Yeah. James Mason. I was actually going to bring up James Mason. because I feel like another factor uh, that should have gone into Judy Garland winning is having to put up with James Mason, who for some reason for me always seems inherently distrustworthy. Anytime I see James Mason on screen, I'm just like, hmm. I don't like that guy. I got no real reason for not liking him, but there's something about him that just gives off a bad vibe. And he's such I, a, I especially get that here. He's such an unlikely romantic lead. Uh, and it, 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 it somehow the pairing of him uh, and Judy Garland works. And I think Judy yeah. Garland in her way is also an unlikely romantic lead. Um, but these two somehow, I believe them. Yeah. The guy from The Verdict you... is really interesting in this. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys prefer him to Brando when it comes to the lead actor lineup? No. I haven't seen the entire lead, leading man lineup for this year, but I prefer Brando to Mason. I mean, this is one of the greatest Marlon Brando performances. I, I, I find them pretty hard to deny here. This is, this is my favorite of Brando's nominations. Of the ones I I've mean, seen. I haven't seen all of them yet. Robinson Crusoe aside, this is a great lineup. This is the Robinson Crusoe lineup. Okay, first of all, I don't know, Brandon, if you've seen Robinson Crusoe. No. It is the most ridiculous thing. I actually tweeted from the AQ account, I think back in like early October. I was like, I just watched the most ridiculous Oscar nomination I've ever seen in my life. I was referring to that. It doesn't make sense because 95% of the movie he's in voiceover. And then like, there's nothing for him to do. Um, so with that said, he should win. No, um, I mean, I've seen everything but bogey here. I think I would give it to Mason because I don't really find Brando that enticing and on the waterfront because I find Rod Steiger really stealing the show. Um, so I would say Mason. It's it's Brando for me, but Brando, Bogart, Crosby, and Mason are all four delivering great work here. Oh, I didn't. I forgot to mention it during the Country Girl. This is maybe the only time I've ever liked Bing Crosby in a movie. Um, I think he's, he's actually very good in the Country Girl, and yes. I usually hate him in everything I see him in. So yes, this is a his one nomination that I actually agree with him having. Agreed. Um, yeah, if you're gonna nominate Dan O'Harely for anything, Halloween Three, Season of the Witch was definitely the better of his two performances that I'm we're talking about here. Um, and this is the only nominated performance from a Louis Buñuel film, which is really bizarre. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite of the films of A Star is Born between all four? Because we've talked about three of them on here now. Yeah. My favorite is the Judy Garland version. Christoph? I must, I must admit I'm somehow torn between... I, I find it hard to choose between Judy Garland and Lady Gaga. These are the two yeah. which are 
certainly above the other two. And I think it depends on, on my mood of the day, which one I'm more drawn to. I would say the Garland version is the best one for me, but I will say the Bradley Cooper, his acting is the best of the four men. Yes. By yeah. far. I by, agree with that. Um, it's also the one that seems most centered on the men. Yeah. It's not many times we care about men, but I will take it for Bradley Cooper in A Star is Born. Yes. So, boys, anything else? Let's get into the ranking. Let's do it. Let's go back and get these supporting ladies done with. Okay. So our supporting ladies were Eva Marie Saint and on the waterfront, Nina Foch for Executive Suite, Katie Horado for Broken Lance, Jan Sterling for The High and the Mighty, and Claire Trevor for The High and the Mighty. I am putting Claire Trevor at number five for The High and the Mighty. Um, I like Claire Trevor. I just don't feel like she's really bringing anything interesting to this performance. And she is not nearly one of the first things I think of when I think of the film. And I just watched it this morning. So uh, Claire Trevor is my number five. Christoph? I'm also putting Claire Trevor on number five. I don't like this performance. This is one note. This is bad. This is boring. Um, She has that one speech that doesn't have to do anything with the rest of the film. This is the worst in the lineup that's really not good. So I don't give a fuck who wins this category. So let me just asterisk this right now. Um, So with that said, I'm going to agree Claire Trevor is in five because why not? Also, out of the five, this is just the most laughable nomination. So she's at five. For four, I'm putting Katie Hirado, uh in this spot. I really want better for her. She is definitely someone who I think has the talent and the drive to deliver uh, great performances. Unfortunately, this movie is just letting her down in every way possible. And she's trying her damnedest. You can see it on screen. But unfortunately, she is not being uh, boosted in any way by the writing or the directing or, frankly, her scene partners. And so, unfortunately, I have to put her at number four. Yes, it breaks my heart to say this, but I'm also putting Katie Hurado at number four. She deserves so much better, but this film doesn't give her anything to work with. So she's number four for me. So I'm also putting Katie at four. Um she says my husband really well. So it's more memorable than what Claire Trevor is doing. So that's why I'm putting her at four. I'm putting Jan Sterling at number three for the high and the mighty. Um, she has uh, the more memorable part of the two high and the mighty ladies. Um, I really enjoy what she's doing. Uh, this movie is way too long and has too many characters and she manages to stick out and be memorable, but um, but this is just such a lackluster lineup that I'm still not thrilled with it. So she's just in the middle for me, I guess. Well, I'm also putting Jan Sterling in third. Um, Her character is ridiculous. She makes something with it that's memorable. I still don't really love it, but at least she tried and gave it something. So she's my number three in this lineup. So I'm also putting Jan Sterling at third. 
Um, suspicious. Okay. Um, this is a drag queen performance, and you know she's got it. she she can remove some makeup. Good for her. But uh, yeah, she's gonna be at three. My runner-up is Nina Foch for uh, Executive Suite. I think this character is more interesting than initially meets the eye. There's a lot going on with this character. Um, she's making some very specific choices and I really dig what she's doing here. It kind of makes me, she made me feel sad for her even though there's not really anything inherently sad about this character. Uh, maybe that's just what I'm applying to it. Um, I find this like this lost woman in corporate America to be kind of tragic. Uh, maybe that's just because that's where I work right now and I'm just projecting or something. I don't know. But um, I'm going to let Eva Marie Saint have the win here. I think she plays the more active role in her film compared to the others that we have here. I like this, her approach to it, this sort of uh, grounded realistic approach this sort of lee strasberg type thing that she's bringing to it um in this era i think she matches her co-stars while still having this sort of um old hollywood uh movie star um energy to her so um uh, even marie saint's gonna be my winner in this uh lineup well um as we said this lineup is not great. It needed Pearl Bailey, it needed Thelma Ritter, it needed Mercedes McCambridge for Johnny Guitar. Um, the two performances that remain are both performances I like a lot, but that would be in contention for maybe a th number three place in most other lineups. Um, and I thought a long time which one of those I'm giving the win for, but it became very clear for me after a while that my runner-up is Eva Marie Saint and my winner is Nina Foch. Um, Eva Marie Saint is giving a very good debut performance here and I totally understand that if you just look at this lineup you think that okay she's probably winning by default because this is the only performance people actually remember but I think there are several factors working in her favor that don't have really anything to do with the performance itself, like that she's playing in the masterpiece that people still watch today and that people still put in lists of greatest films of all time today, that she has a lot more screen time than anyone else in the category, that she's playing probably the second most important character of the film, that she's playing a part that was designed to stand out. Um, also that she's the only woman in her film. I mean, there are 16 credited actors and on the waterfront, 15 of them are men and one of them is Eva Marie Saint. Um, so these are all things that are supposed to draw attention to her. And on the other hand, you have Nina Fosch, who I'm gonna say a Nina Fosch Oscar campaign was probably in nobody's mind when this film was made. She's always in the sidelines of a film. She doesn't get a story arc of her own. Still, she, she somehow becomes the backbone of the film and the person I liked, I felt drawn to, um, while around her, bigger names are playing showier parts. I mean, in the opening credits, I think there are eight title cards with individual action, the ninth title cards, her name pops up and she has to share it with two other actors. Um, so the question is basically, in a year where I'm not very enthusiastic anyway, 
do I give supporting actress to the third best performer in an all-time classic or to the actress who takes a nothing part and walks away with a much, much lesser film? And I think in the spirit of the best supporting actress category, it feels much more appropriate to give it to Nina Fosh, who had more obstacles to overcome than Eva Marie Saint, who did very well in a part that was designed for her to shine. So my winner is Nina Fosh. Ooh, who do I who do I agree with here? <laughs> like I feel like I'm a tiebreaker. Um, because I found this very interesting that our lineups were identical here for a solid minute. Um, like I said, I don't give a fuck who wins this category because they're all terrible. But um, I gotta say, I agree with Christoph here. Uh, Eva Marie Saint is the runner-up and Nina Fuck, I'm still sticking with it. Nina Fuck is the winner. Um, here's the thing, Eva Marie, Eva Marie Saint won. She's the one people remember, good for her. Um, I don't understand why she would win for something like this, but I understand why she wins on paper in this lineup for Oscar voters. But I agree with, for me, I got to look at, and Christoph, you nailed that on the head. The person who took the role that no one really thought was going to, you know, there was no Oscar campaign on their mind and was able to somehow stand out compared to the woman who is kind of in the role made for Oscar contention. So either way, they're all trash, but Nina Fuck wins that category for me. Whatever. She's my Tess Harper, apparently, so of this year. Um, all right. As a reminder, your leading ladies were Jane Wyman in Magnificent Obsession, Judy Garland in A Star is Born. You had uh, Grace Kelly in The Country Girl, uh, Dorothy Dandridge in Carmen Jones, and Audrey Hepburn in Sabrina. Number five is Grace Kelly. This is trash. Mama, this is garbage. This is garbage. Christoph, what is German for garbage? Müll. This is Müll. This is... <laughs> This is <laughs> so you know what? No, five. Kristoff. Um, I wouldn't say that she's Müll, but I also say that Grace Kelly is obviously the fifth in this lineup. Um, I never bought her as the character. Um, she is not great she is not that good she is very very far away from her competition she is an obvious number five for me uh grace kelly is also gonna be my number five i feel like she has the potential here it's just not really working maybe if she had played it a little bit later in life of course she would go on to leave hollywood just a few years from this year but um it's just it's just not working. I feel like another actress and another director could have made this something special, but that's not what we see on screen. I'm having deja vu from literally <laughs> minutes ago so far. So let's see how we continue this. Um, number four is Jane Wyman. Um, listen, this movie material is hilariously awful, but she's working with what she's got. And with that said, she's a lot better than Grace Kelly. But it, is it more to give her or is it enough to give her higher than four? Absolutely not. Um, so Jane Wyman... I start my Oscar journey with you here and it's a four. So let's see if you can do better down the road, I guess. Well, Jane Wyman is also number four for me. Um, this is a very good performance. It fits very well into the film. 
the only reason that this performance is number four and not higher is the fact that the other three performances are all timers for me and I find it very hard to find the right order for the other three. Um, so in the very, very tough year, Jane Wyman is just a bit unlucky to only end up on four for me. Well, Jane Wyman's also my number four in this lineup. Uh, I like Jane Wyman here. I think she's doing exactly what she needs to uh, in order to ground this film and to keep it from crossing that line into bonkers. Um, but I think, like like Christoph said, the, the other three that we all have remaining here are just too iconic. Um, so unfortunately, Jane Wyman's only number four for me as well. I'll be interested to know where we part ways here, if we part ways here. Um, I think you... You know, you both just mentioned the final three are just too damn good to not be in the final three. But with that said, Audrey Hepburn and Sabrina is my third because the final two for me are just neck and neck with how good they are in their films. Audrey is great here. And, and this feels like, because she won the year before this, right? For Roman Holiday. Yeah. Yes. It feels like if she had not won for that and maybe this came out down the line i could see this slam dunk winning but when you have dorothy dandridge and judy garland left audrey just becomes the victim of who is in this category so three i think is a fair place for her okay this is the moment that we do part ways because my number three is dorothy dandridge as i said these three performances are all terrific i could see all three of them winning and it's Basically, it's beyond the point where I can really give a reason why I'm ranking them that way. It's just that I feel more, more enthusiastic about the other two, which is the reason why Dorothy Dandridge is my number three in this lineup. Um, Audrey Hepburn is my number three for Sabrina. I quite like Audrey Hepburn in this uh, performance. I think she's, she's bringing a a side of herself to this role and um, making an Audrey Hepburn role, quote unquote, whatever that means. Uh, while also, I think making something really um, that stands out among her other Audrey Hepburn, quote unquote, performances. Um, I went into this movie not really knowing what to expect because I have been kind of infamously lukewarm on her other performances but I was kind of taken with this one. I find her very charming, very funny in this particular role. Um, but I'm just, I'm more blown away by, I guess, Garland and Dandridge. So that's why they are my top two. Wow. Seems that Brandon and I are aligning for the leads and then Christoph and I align for supporting. So let's see, let's see if Brandon and I then make this to the end. Um, Dandridge and Garland are, for me, the easy top two standouts here. However, if you, I gave away who won this category for me back in the first season when we did 1972, because I said Diana Ross was the very first winner of color in this lead category who had been nominated, who I would have given the Oscar to. With that said, Dorothy Dandridge is my runner up. Judy Garland this is a fucking winner. Dandridge is fantastic. And Dandridge, I really would have loved to see win this in any other year, but I have to give it to Judy Garland. It is without a doubt the best. 
in this lineup and it is all timer for me. So Judy Garland is my winner. Great stuff. My runner up is Audrey Hepburn, which means that my winner is also Judy Garland. I love Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn is an icon. I feel drawn to her. I would probably give this win to Audrey Hepburn in most other years, but Judy Garland is a steamroller. Judy Garland is undeniable. Judy Garland gets everything thrown at her that she excels at, and she excels at it. It's just an amazing performance in all timer. I find it impossible to deny Judy Garland the win here because this is why Audrey Hepburn is my number two and Judy Garland is here my number one. Dorothy Dandridge is my runner up here. Um, it's it's unfortunate that she's in this lineup because in so many other years she would be a slam dunk winner because she's phenomenal in Carmen Jones and she's doing everything that a, a winner ought to be doing. Um, but Judy Garland is giving pretty much the performance of a lifetime in A Star is Born. And um, I pretty much agree uh, when other people say that this is one of the most heartbreaking losses in the category's history because um, Garland had everything going for her. And this really should have been her Oscar. If she were to only have one, this makes sense. Of course, I also give it to her for Judgment at Nuremberg. So in my mind, she has two. But um, this is... This is the one that I think makes the most sense on paper for Judy Garland specifically. And it's uh, pretty awful that she did not win, in my opinion. Yeah, in my mind, um, Judy Garland has three, and that would be Wizard of Oz, despite my dislike of that movie, this, and Judgment at Nuremberg. So there's that. I would not give it to her for Oz, but I love that you do. I don't know who yeah. else is in the category, but I would give it to her for us. A certain Mrs. Vivian Lee for Gone with the Wind? Oh, fuck her. Fuck her. No. That, no. No, 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 no. Um, okay. That's so you. Vivian Lee I... is not good in that movie at all. I think she is. <laughs> I do not like that movie. I have problems with that film just as a film. Um, but I do think Vivian Lee is one of the best things about it. Fair, fair. I know I'm, I'm in the minority in that. Um, so as a uh, recap, I give it to Nina Fuck and uh, Judy Garland. Christoph? I also give it to Nina Fush and Judy Garland. And I have Judy Garland and Eva Marie Saint. Because you're a basic bitch. I am. <laughs> uh, Christoph, thank you, man, so much. You're our final guest ever for Academy Queens. How does it make you feel? It's, it, it's very surprising that you chose me, of all people, to be your final guest. But then I thought I sort of get it, whereas many other podcasts would go for a fan favorite. You just went for your favorite fan. Um, I want to thank you so much for having me. I have really enjoyed this time with you. I also want to thank you for doing this podcast, which I really enjoyed over the months listening to it. It also drew me into film Twitter in a while for a bit uh, and much more than used to you. It's such a great experience listening to this podcast now, finally being on this podcast with the both of you. you it, you've one been one of our original fans. Yeah. I think. You've been I, a I, through the last couple of years with this. You truly I have. joined in the 70s. I've been yep. a fan of yours since the 70s. Love that. I, I, You know, it, it really is. You've been such a highlight in getting to know you over the last couple of years. 
has been great. You introduced me to uh, Night Weekend at Mariband. Last year at Marienbad. Yes. Close. It was close. And it was fantastic. <laughs> It was a great, great time. We we did like it wasn't a, close. You almost said weekend at Bernie's. I, it's, it's it's almost three a.m. here. Uh, <laughs> uh, Christoph, tell people where they can find you. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Judge Roy Snyder. I'm on Letterboxd at Christoph N. I'm on Sporkle as as Mr. Whiplash, where I'm your curator for the German and actor categories, and throwing out new quizzes uh, several times a week. Love that. Thank you so much again. Uh, we, we've had you booked, I think, for solid six or seven months now. So the fact that we finally finally got to do this with you, I'm very happy that you, you came on for our final guest. My honor. Well, we have, our, we have two episodes left. Um, yeah. Shall we plug the next one? Plug away, it is your turn. Okay. So um, while trying to figure out which um, iconic years listeners would want to hear us talk about, uh, before we uh, pack our bags, I guess, uh, we decided that the ladies of 1951, speaking of Vivian Lee, would be one the listeners would want to hear us talk about. So you'll get to hear Joey trash uh, a winner who is a lot of people's favorite, and it's going to be a great time. Uh, not to put you on the spot, Christoph, but before we sign off here, uh, do you want to take a guess and since you're the first one to hear what it, it's going to be, who you think we would pick in 1951 that is the uh, uh, streetcar named Desire year? Oh, um, let me have a look just at the nominations. So you um, have Vivian Lee in A Streetcar Named Desire, Catherine Hepburn in The African Queen, Eleanor Parker in Detective Story, Shelley Winters in A Place in the Sun, and Jane Wyman for The Blue Veil. Well, I think since you, Brendan, are such a basic bitch, you're going for Vivian Lee in the lead. Um, Joey, um, I want to say Eleanor Parker. I would love to say Catherine Hepburn, but I want to say Eleanor Parker. But Eleanor Parker is supporting the detective story, so she's category fraud. Um, Shelley Winters, I'm going to say Catherine Hepburn for you, just for fun. Um, in supporting... Well, Thelma Ritter is lead, so she's category fraud. Lee Grant for both of you. Mm, oh no, I, I don't know. No, no. Let's 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 go back to basic. Which Kim Hunter for you, Brandon, and uh, Lee Grant for you, Joey. Okay. Well, as of right now, Kim Hunter is the only one I've seen in that lineup, so I honestly can't say. But uh, this is going to be a fun one. It is going to be fun. Um, all right. On the count of three, we'll give an uh, Sen away to everyone ready one two three auf wiedersehen, auf wiedersehen.